Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege to interview Jeff Kane, um, talking specifically about the downgrade controversy in Charles Spurgeon. So welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So good to be with you guys. And really just to start us off, would you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your involvement with the Spurgeon Library? Yeah. Yeah, so so prior to coming to Kansas City, Missouri, I was an associate pastor uh, of a Baptist church, Henson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. And, and during that time, I, I did my doctoral studies at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, I, I wrote my dissertation on Spurgeon and his ecclesiology. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the invitation came out for me to, to serve at Midwestern. Um, if you've ever been to the Spurgeon Library, you'll understand that it was a hard offer to turn down. As much as I loved pastoring and, and being out in Portland, um, you know, my wife and I, as we prayed about it, we felt like the Lord had led us to this place. So currently I serve as an assistant professor of historical theology at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, and I'm also the curator of the Spurgeon Library. Now, what is the Spurgeon Library? Well, uh, have either of you guys been there? Okay, yes. Yeah, yes. so I mean, <clears throat> it's a beautiful space. We house uh, 6,000 volumes of Spurgeon's own pastoral library. Um, the, the, these were the tools of his ministry. And so uh, we have the privilege of not only being stewards of these books, but we have all kinds of artifacts from his life. And we're, we're seeking to use that space as a way to, to tell the story of Spurgeon's life and ministry. Uh, we have all kinds of research and publications that are coming out of the Spurgeon Library. Um, we have guests that come by. So I, I get to be sort of at the, the center of it all, thinking about how to be a good steward of these resources. Uh, and make them of benefit to pastors and to churches, to Christians. Um, so you can go to Spurgeon.org, and you can see some of what we've got going on there at the Spurgeon Library. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. We are thankful for your willingness to talk with us today and uh, for the common interests that we have in Spurgeon. And as Jimmy mentioned, we're kind of going to focus on the downgrade controversy. So um you could take this wherever you want, I suppose, but can you briefly sketch the later years of Spurgeon's life, what was happening towards the end of his life and his ministry, and what important events were taking place prior to or after, again, wherever you want to take this, uh, the downgrade controversy? Yeah, if, if you read um, any sort of biography of Spurgeon, uh, you'll note that kind of towards the end of his life, the later years of Spurgeon's life and ministry uh, it's marked by a couple of things. Uh, he's really busy. Uh, you know, he's he's still preaching on a regular basis. Uh, you know, he's got the weekly sermons being published, selling you know thousands of copies, and so with that comes the editing, the preparation, and so he's at the head of that. He's he runs his magazine, The Sword and the Trial. Uh, one of the sort of primary ministries that he's focused on, kind of in the latter part of his ministry, uh, is the pastor's college. So, uh, you know, meeting with the students. Uh, teaching there, um, also sort of guiding and shepherding students after they graduate, as they go on to plant new churches, 
uh, as they go into revitalized churches, you know, sending guys out. So he's sort of trying to be helpful and coordinate these various efforts. Uh, and in that way, he's just sort of at the center of, of Baptist life there in the UK, right? There's so much that's going on uh, in, in the UK, kind of in the latter part of the 19th, 19th century, and Spurgeon sort of in the middle of it all. Um, so it's a busy time of ministry. That's kind of one big theme. But then the, the other theme is just the fact that he's in terrible health. Um, <clears throat> he's always kind of struggled with poor health, but kind of from 1875 onwards, kind of the last 15, 20 years of his life, he regularly has these long bouts of, of sickness. Uh, and, and that sort of moves over into even kind of a, a, a depression. Um, you know, he, I think, had this problem of basically being overworked with all that was going on. And he would work until his health failed him. And then he would be forced to kind of retreat to Mentone in France, uh, where it was warmer to sort of recover his health. And he'd be gone for, you know, three, four months at a time uh, and then try to kind of rush back and, and re-engage into the work. So that was sort of like the, the rhythm of his life, not a good rhythm uh, in terms of caring for yourself. But, but you have this amazing tension between somebody who's incredibly busy and productive and yet really dealing with, with some serious health challenges. And, and that goes on for much of the latter part of his life. life. So, with the downgrade controversy, um, <clears throat> it's sort of that dynamic that you're seeing Spurgeon in that, that as he enters into uh, the controversy. So to further set up our discussion on the downgrade specifically, what was the Baptist Union and in what ways was Spurgeon's church involved with it? Yeah, so the Baptist Union, uh, they formed in 1812. Uh, under the leadership of a former pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, his name was John Rippon. Uh, <clears throat> the particular Baptists in London got together, and uh, they formed uh, the Baptist Union as a way for them to cooperate and associate together as, as a, a form of pastoral fellowship. Uh, they had an explicit doctrinal statement that was clear about their particular Baptist convictions. Um, there was a clear commitment to kind of a Baptist underst understanding of the church. Uh, and, and this was quite instrumental for creating sort of a, a national identity for Baptists in Britain. Um, <clears throat> so they formed this association, and you know, for the first few decades, uh, it was mainly a, a source of kind of pastoral fellowship, of bringing churches together. Um, but beginning in the 1830s, they began to think more about how can we do something together. Um, one of the changes that came in the 1830s was that they uh, basically changed their, their doctrinal statement to remove the more Calvinistic uh, elements and basically just say that we are uh, evangelical. We hold to uh, those sentiments usually denominated evangelical. So making clear that they believed in the gospel, in the authority of scripture, um, but you know, the, uh, an Armenian could join. So, so this kind of opened the way for uh, the, the more Armenian Baptists. They were called the New Connection Baptists, uh, led by Dan Taylor. Uh, they were able to join the Baptist Union. Uh, the, the, the association grew, and they became much more active. Uh, they became more involved with missions, 
with evangelism, with various charitable societies. Um, it's it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? You know, you uh, the more that you agree on together, you may have less people in the group, but you can actually do more because you agree on that together. But then you're limited by lesser resources. Uh, but then if you enlarge the group, you, if you lower the wall of agreement, you have more resources and you can do more. But then the kinds of things you can do together maybe are are less or are different. You know, So there, there's this fascinating tension you see in the Baptist Union between wanting to be bigger and yet wrestling with what, what is it that we agree on, right, doctrinally. Um, and and that, this sort of Baptist Union was uh, sort of in play during Spurgeon's ministry. He was always glad to be involved with the Baptist Union. As you can imagine, Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, they were hugely influential in the Union. Right. So many of the pastors that were joining the union were his graduates from the pastor's college who were going out and planting churches, who were revitalizing churches. And so Spurgeon's prominence obviously uh, kept increasing. Um, and, and the Baptist Union was growing. I mean, during those years of Spurgeon's ministry, again, they were involved with all kinds of ministries that were much larger than any individual local church could engage in. Right, so they were able to send out missionaries. They were able to send out evangelists, uh, organize societies, uh, do church planning. These are all things that they could do together as a an association of churches that not any one church could do individually. Um, now, in 1873, uh, another change took place. Was that in, in that um, the Baptist Union wanted to become the union for all Baptists, uh, and so they removed this idea that the, the line about having evangelical sentiments from the Constitution, um, the only required sort of doctrinal agreement was believer's baptism. And they thought that that was enough to kind of guard the orthodoxy of the, of the group. Um, this paved the way for uh, the general Baptists to join the Baptist Union. Uh, it paved the way for different schools and, and different societies to join the union, uh, but it also paved the way for the downgrade controversy. Um, so, so in 1873, a big change takes place in, in the removal of that evangelical sentiments idea. Uh, so now, uh, after that point, there's no longer a sort of doctrinal requirement that, that those who are in it have evangelical convictions. Uh, yeah, so that that's a, a brief overview of what was going on in the Baptist Union. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And that leads up well to what our next question was for you as you started introducing um, the downgrade controversy. So this question's kind of threefold. What was the downgrade controversy? What were some of the ideas uh, being adopted that Spurgeon disagreed with? And in what ways did he respond amidst this controversy? and the downgrade controversy. Yeah. So let me try to give you a, a summary. Uh, you know, so the downgrade controversy, so much has been written on it. Uh, I think there's still existing debate on what exactly happened. Um, but it was kind of this final controversy of Spurgeon's life. And according to his wife, uh, it was so heartbreaking that she believes uh, it, it was the heartbreak of the whole incident that, that actually killed him in the end. Um, so 
Uh, summer and fall of 1887, a series of articles were published in, in Spurgeon's magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. Uh, they were published by one of his associates, and he was basically raising an alarm about the theological decline that was going really throughout the Christian world, uh, but including the, the, the Baptist Union. And uh, this is basically, he was basically talking about the rise of, of theological liberalism. So, so at the heart of his complaint was this, um, the denial of the authority and inspiration of scripture, right? The denial of penal substitutionary atonement, uh, a rejection of eternal punishment, uh, a move towards uh, a more universalistic understanding of salvation. Uh, so, you know, some people have wondered if um, the downgrade controversy was more about, you know, Spurgeon's view on Calvinism or if it was about cultural issues in the, in, going on in the day. And I think when we look at the, the primary source documents, it's very clear that um, the, the kinds of doctrines that they were talking about were doctrines at the heart of uh, kind of a Christian understanding of the gospel, right? So uh, not about sort of secondary or tertiary issues. And, and, and uh, Spurgeon made it very clear in those articles that the fruit of this poor theology could be seen in, in churches all over the country as, as increasing worldliness crept into the churches, as, uh, as prayer meetings ended in churches, you know, as, as churches were, were sloppy when it came to, to practicing church membership, church discipline, uh, so forth and so on. So uh, these articles were published in the Sword of the Trowel, uh, again, not by Spurgeon, but, but by one of his associates. Uh, and that began to create a lot of discussion within the Baptist Union. Uh, in the fall of 87, Spurgeon himself begins to weigh in. He begins to write articles, uh, again, uh, calling out theological liberalism and, and the abandonment of kind of basic evangelical doctrines. And, and Spurgeon's main message in all of this was uh, to say that this brand of Christianity is actually not Christianity at all. Uh, even though the people who adopted these positions still called themselves Christians, even though they were still members of local churches, even though they might be really active in social causes, and they might even use language that affirms, you know, the inspiration of Scripture or the or the resurrection of uh, Christ. But in fact, if as you dug deeper, you would find out that they actually meant very different things by those things, right? And uh, as Spurgeon examined what they were teaching, he realized, yeah, if you deny the atonement, if you deny the deity, the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian in any historic sense of that word, right? And, and that was just hugely kind of intolerant, offensive. Uh, that caused a huge firestorm. Uh, and so there was a big question, you know, here in the fall of 87, the annual meeting of the Baptist Union is coming up. You know, what is going to happen? Uh, and so as the annual meeting takes place, all the pastors are going to it. Spurgeon is not able to go because of his poor health. Uh, and as it turns out, the leaders of the Baptist Union basically just ignore the whole thing. They pretend that everything's fine. Um, and, uh, and so the meeting, the, the meeting just kind of happens as normal. Nothing is addressed about the charges that are being raised. And so later that October... Spurgeon does the drops the bomb. He he resigns from the Baptist Union. Um, his church, the the biggest church of the Union, also follows him in that decision. 
Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine like an example of that. It, it would be like, you know, Desiring God Ministries and then John Piper withdraws, right? From Desiring, like from decides, I'm not going to be a part of this anymore, right? No, you're like the founding pastor. You're, you're such a huge figure. That, that would be, uh, it would be just crazy, right? To think about that. And, well, for Spurgeon to resign from the Baptist Union, it was hugely controversial. Uh, and so initially the Baptist Union tried to win him back. They sent a delegation. Uh, nothing was really accomplished. Um, and then later that spring of 88, uh, the Baptist Union actually formally publicly rebuked Spurgeon for, for what he had said. And, uh, and then in the spring of 88, they passed a, a, their own declaration of faith, which listed the historic beliefs of the Baptist Union, but said these are just historic beliefs. They're not beliefs that you all have to hold to. Uh, but supposedly they felt like that vindicated their evangelical character. Um, well, Spurgeon disagreed. Uh, he was heartbroken by what had happened. A lot of his closest allies turned on him. Um, you know, a lot of Baptist churches, even if they agreed with Spurgeon, it would have been hard for them to leave the Baptist Union, right? I mean, the Metropolitan Tabernacle is so huge. They could afford to leave and they would carry on just fine, right? All their ministries, all their missionaries are all self-supported. Um, <clears throat> they could afford to leave. Uh, your small local church that was so integrated with the Baptist Union, it was much harder for them to, uh, to think about leaving, um, even if they agreed with Spurgeon. So in the end, yeah, um, Spurgeon was heartbroken that, that uh, many of his allies didn't join him uh but still he felt like he did the right thing um and uh yeah I, I think towards the end of his life um a lot of pastors looked on spurgeon kind of as an antiquated dinosaur like you, you know we respect you for all that you did you know in your ministry but really you're old-fashioned you haven't kept up with the times um we've moved on to sort of a, a more enlightened understanding of christianity uh you're still holding on to these puritan ways of, of understanding the gospel um you know so they still respected him but really in their minds they had moved on uh, and i think yeah i think for, for spurgeon that was heartbreaking now that we've considered the controversy or the downgrade controversy what can the controversy itself teach us as baptists in the 21st century and and also what can we learn from Charles Spurgeon's response to it? Yeah, um, you know, the one question that we, we or scholars ask uh, is that, you know, does Spurgeon do the right thing? Uh, should he have remained engaged in the Baptist Union? Or, or did he do the right thing in resigning and leaving the Baptist Union? And that's a fascinating question. Of course, it's, there's no way to answer that ultimately. Um, I'll say this. I, I mean, he was absolutely right uh, to say that this kind of teaching uh, of theological liberalism is not Christianity, right? Liberal Christianity is actually another religion. Uh, so, so Spurgeon was ahead of his time in, in recognizing that. And, and therefore, to be in association with those who hold to those positions, you know, that, that says something false about the gospel. Right? That says something false about what we believe. So, so Spurgeon was absolutely right uh, to, to recognize that about liberal Christianity. 
uh, and again, I mean, kind of theological liberalism. Um, you know, I, I, I think we have to be careful. Not every disagreement uh, is a gospel issue. I think we can disagree on secondary and tertiary issues and still be in fellowship with one another. But when we see a disagreement on kind of primary doctrinal issues uh, that touch on the gospel, I think it's important for Christians to be clear about that and to take a stand even, as Spurgeon did. Um, I, I think the debate, though, uh, lies more in whether Spurgeon could have done more in terms of using his influence for good. You know, I, I think had he been in better health and could have shown up at that fall of 87 Baptist Union meeting uh, and been, you know, been there in person, um, perhaps he could have done more good, right? It's one thing to write articles, uh, to exchange letters, but to show up in person and to let people see your face and to let them hear your voice and to try to make a, make a case for, for your position, um, I think that could have been more effective. You know, so I wish Spurgeon was in better health, had more energy. He could have been there and could have um, made his argument in person uh, rather than just over letters and articles. Uh, but as it is in, in God's providence, his health troubles prevented him from being there. Uh, and, and I think that contributed to how things played out, that, that both sides sort of hardened in their division. Um, so I think that's, that's one lesson that he has to teach us, just uh, the, the importance of being clear on the gospel, and yet, um, <clears throat> you know, our, our desire to want to work with people and, and to engage people in person on these issues, uh, as opposed to just over Twitter and over, over articles and over magazines and, and so forth. Um, I think another important lesson, I'm just struck by this, you know, um, with Spurgeon, you know, you can't be so, uh, you can't ever be so popular that you won't experience persecution, you know, or, or opposition or slander, you know, even at the height of your ministry, right? Uh, Spurgeon, as, as massively fruitful as he was, uh, as much as his sermons were read, um, as well known as he was, towards the end of his life, he was um, besieged. I mean, he was opposed, right? Everybody turned on him. Um, and so what I just appreciate uh, in, in this story is just seeing that uh, Spurgeon understood that this was not an unusual thing. Uh, he was ready for it, and he was ready to take that stand, even though it, it cost him so much. Um, and so, uh, you know, in our day, I think we have to have um, a readiness to, to face that, you know, even in the 21st century. I, th I don't think we should be surprised when we take a stand for the gospel, when we find people finding it, you know, intolerant or being opposed to it. Mm. Thank you for that. And I failed to mention uh, at the beginning of this episode that this subject came by the request of one of our listeners. And, mm. uh, thankful for you to talk on Spurgeon and the Baptist Union and the downgrade controversy. And before we let you go today, we do have two more questions. Um, we're interested to know what you're working on in all of Spurgeon's ministry as a Spurgeon scholar. What projects are you involved with right now that you are at least willing to tell us about? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll mention a few. And at this point, my research on Spurgeon is focused on just him as a pastor. Uh, we hear a lot about 
Spurgeon as a preacher, you know, his work with orphanages, you know, the pastor's college, all these things. But sometimes we overlook the fact that he was a local church pastor. Uh, and so I've got a book coming out this spring, I think, maybe maybe summer, uh, called Spurgeon the Pastor, where I just basically look at uh, how he went about shepherding a church of 5,000 people, uh, how he did membership interviews, how they kept track of, uh, of, of you know, church discipline cases, uh, how his elders and deacons worked together. Um, so, so be on the lookout for that. It's called Spurgeon the Pastor. Uh, to go with that, I've also got another volume uh, where I look at Spurgeon's ecclesiology. Uh, it's basically my dissertation. Uh, so uh, I think the title of the book is The Army of God, Spurgeon's Vision for the Local Church. Um, and so so uh, both of those books, looking at his pastoral ministry, one looking at his, at his ecclesiology. Uh, I hope that's a great help to, to pastors, to local church members, as they think about how to be faithful in the local church. Well, I know I'll be looking out for both those books and waiting eagerly to get my hands on them and read them. To to conclude our, our episode and our interview, do you have any final encouragements or perhaps even warnings or exhortations that you would give to our audience about the subject that we've been talking about in mm -hmm. this episode? Yeah, I, I thought of a couple of things. Um, the first thing that comes to mind uh, it's just the importance of your church's statement of faith. You know, we've been talking about uh, the importance of kind of doctrinal boundaries. Uh, that's what your church's statement, statement of faith is. Um, it, it outlines what you as a local church have agreed on. Um, most likely, your uh, those doctrines have to do with uh, the gospel. They have to do with things that are of primary importance. Uh, and they have to do with what you have to believe and agree together in order to be a local church. Uh, and so if you've never looked at your church's statement of faith, you should, you should search for that, find it, look at it, uh, make sure you know what it is, make sure you agree convictionally with all of it. You know, I, I don't just mean that you agree to submit to it, but no, that you actually believe in your heart from, that this is what the Bible teaches, right? Uh, and especially if you're a pastor, if you're a church leader, make sure that your church's statement of faith is a part of the life of your church. Um, you know, too often I think churches find their center not in doctrine, but in, in good things like relationships or, or community activity or, or missions or, or, or whatever. You know, again, these are all good things. But I think the downgrade controversy reminds us that you can have all those things, but then lose the gospel. Right. No, instead, we want to have churches that are united around the gospel. And out of that unity flows all those other good things, right? Our community, missions, activity, so forth and so on. So, so uh, think about your church's statement of faith. Make sure that it's at the center of the life of your church. And the other thing, I th the other lesson, particularly for us to kind of conclude with, uh, is just as we face opposition, have the long view. You know, when Spurgeon was facing uh, this controversy, he, he, he had this famous line where he says, you know, I'm ready to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years, uh, but the more distant future will vindicate me. Um, you know, Spurgeon understood that this, this new teaching was just going to be a fad. It wasn't going to last. Uh, kind of ultimately, in eternity, but certainly even in sort of the, the, the long view of church history, uh, the gospel is going to prevail. 
and so opposition may come in a short while, but if we stand on the gospel, uh, God will be faithful and he will vindicate his truth. Uh, and I think that th- it's amazing that in the Spurgeon Library, 130 years later, we continue to talk about him. We continue to have this podcast. Uh, I think he was exactly right that the, that the more distant future did vindicate him. Uh, and that's an encouraging reminder to us not to lose heart, right? When Even when it seems like when everybody around us may be going in, in different directions, maybe turning away from uh, the hope of the gospel, uh, we can hold fast to it knowing that uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that Christ will triumph and, and, and his gospel will last through the ages. And so that's what we want to build our lives on. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been speaking with Jeff Chang on Spurgeon, the Baptist Union, and the downgrade controversy. Jeff has given us a, a brief sketch, especially with Spurgeon's later life and ministry and the events leading up to the downgrade controversy. He's given us some background information on the Baptist Union and uh, some of the things that led up to the downgrade controversy. And he has finished by giving us several applications that we can take from uh, a talk on the Baptist Union. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your willingness to take the time to talk with us today. It's a joy to be with you guys. Thank you. We hope that this conversation will be profitable to you that listen. Grace and peace to you. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.